Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe. Those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a wonderful chat room with some really super people that join us every week. So, Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. We do. We have people in the chat room that come every single time, and there are those who just pop by once or twice and... uh, you know, just give us, you know, their little bits of insight. It's it's a good group. We have some great conversations, and I learn a lot from them all the time. So it's of great value to me. I'm sure it'll be of great value to you if you can come join us, as long as the boss doesn't mind or you're not driving. That's not good. The cops don't like that. So <laughs> do come join us. That's provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right. In this week's spotlight, I wish to discuss patience. Lao Tse is credited with offering this advice. Quote, I have just three things to teach. Simplicity, patience, compassion. These three are your greatest treasures. Close quote. We live at a time when folks seem to rush to conclusions, judgments, and are easily riled over the slightest disagreements. We don't seem to have time to hear each other out or the patience to consider alternative options. Add to this the constant state of increased arousal, enlarged by world events, the news, the pundits, and the daily pressures of life, and many of us are wound tight, ready to explode over the slightest perceived provocation. Think about the last time you really heard someone out who proposed an alternative point of view, or when you bit your tongue and allowed someone to explain their perspective. When was the last time you truly listened instead of silently marshalling what you were going to say next? How often do you find yourself cutting someone off with your own interrupting thoughts? How long has it been since someone else's ideas really moved you, even leading to a change in heart? Patience is much more than a virtue. It is often the key to understanding, understanding another and understanding ourself. We all can be altogether too quick to jump to conclusions, to overstate our positions, to underestimate another, and to overestimate ourselves. You often heard me speak of life and the lessons we learn, both as a school and an opportunity to grow into ourselves. Growing into ourselves, coming to grips with who we really are, in the sense of our strengths and weaknesses, our authentic self, and then maximizing who we are is the path to self-actualization. When we're impatient with the world, we're invariably impatient with ourselves. In this state, we can easily delude ourselves in ways that hide true awareness, knowledge, and wisdom. 
I would encourage everyone today to reach down inside and remind yourself that life, its meaning and value, comes in daily doses, one opportunity at a time. And we miss those opportunities when we fail to be patient, listen, evaluate, and learn. It may take some perseverance before you discover the perfection in patience, but remember the words of John Quincy Adams. Patience and perseverance have a magical effect before which difficulties disappear and obstacles vanish. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? I think that is cool, you know, patience and perseverance. I did like your comment where you said that life's meaning comes in daily doses. There is so much truth to that. I think everyone looks for those big magical moments, those epiphanies, those, you know, and what there is to learn does come on a day-to-day basis in every little interaction that you have. And hearing each other out is a huge part of that because... I mean, you're totally correct. The state of the country right now, people aren't hearing each other. But when you truly listen to someone else, then that other person feels heard and then they are more likely to listen to you. And when you truly hear each other, you'll find that you're not separated as far as wide as you think it is. You know, um, you have a whole lot more in common. You have the same goals. You just Maybe you have different ways to get there and you can find solutions. Solutions come from when you hear each other out. I think our defensiveness for all intent and purposes often blocks our progress, period. But I'm going to ask our guest about that today. First, however, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week, our show featured a conversation with Ravinder about inner talk and self-sabotage. Nikki wrote, thank you, Ravinder, for your explanations. I was really moved by some of the examples you offered and found your ideas very helpful. You like that, don't you? John wrote, wow, I ordered an Intertalk CD right away and I can already see it working. Andrea commented, this reminds me of a few Intertalk titles I need to revisit. Richard added, and the unsaid thing today, how great Ravinder is to talk to on the phone. She is a genius on the programs. You truly are. You know that, don't you? I enjoy customer service. I do like talking to people, you know, and then once you get their feedback as well, then that's uh, the added bonus. That is the the payday for sure. (laughs) Finally, Marilee wrote, thank you. Your inner talk confidence CD has changed my life. I play it every night while I am sleeping. It helps me feel great. Okay, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but we love your feedback, so please keep it coming. You can opine by writing me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. We do sincerely appreciate your thoughts and ideas. Now to today's show. Insight, why we're not as self-aware as we think. With our special guest, Dr. Tasha Yurik. Do you consider yourself to be truly self-aware? What does it mean to be honestly self-aware? I mean, are we self-aware because we read books, study self-help, forgive others, or what? Do you think that self-awareness is equatable to emotional intelligence? Do you know that according to the Gestalt therapy, the old adage is, awareness equals responsibility. Are you one who is quick to accept responsibility for the things that don't work? And if so, Are you perhaps too quick to do so? 
Does self-awareness genuinely require self-responsibility? And if so, what is it? Or is self-awareness really just confidence, self-confidence? Well, our guest today can give us answers to these questions, so let me tell you a little about her. Dr. Tasha Yurick is an organizational psychologist, researcher, and New York Times best-selling author. With a Ph.D. in organizational psychology, she is also the founder of the Yurick Group, where she's helped thousands of leaders and teams improve their effectiveness through greater self-awareness. Dr. Yurick has contributed to Entrepreneur, CNBC.com, and The Huffington Post, and has been featured in outlets such as Forbes, The New York Times, Fast Company, and Inc. Her TEDx talk has been viewed more than a million times. It's a great talk. I viewed it myself. I suggest you all look it up when this show's concluded and give it a listen yourself. So on that, let's let her get let's get her in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Tasha Yurick. Thanks, Eldon. It's great to be here. I'm glad to have you join us. I, I loved your book. I enjoyed it very, very much. And I think, you know, Everyone can gain from this, even if they, you know, consider themselves to be somewhat of a, you know, a specialist in in the area. Uh, but we like to learn three things from our guest, Dr. Yurik. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? So to that end, what in your life led you to study self-awareness? That is such a great starting point because it's, it's a very personal subject for me. So you mentioned that, uh, you know, I've been practicing organizational psychology for almost 15 years. And what I started to see as the years went by was a really clear pattern. On one hand, I saw so many leaders and bosses, and I think everyone's been here, um, that, that had no idea how they were coming across to other people, that really didn't know what they stood for or what they were passionate about. And ultimately, it wouldn't be a matter of if but when those people would really get in their own way, and very often they would crash and burn. But on the other hand, um, so many of the folks that I've worked with who have put in time and energy to see themselves clearly, to understand the impact they have on other people and how other people see them, were always more successful. And so about three years ago, I, I started really looking at this in earnest, scientifically, and I was so surprised at how little we actually knew about self-awareness from a scientific perspective. So uh, my research team and I took it upon ourselves to start um, what we believe to be the, the largest, longest self-awareness study of its kind. And we learned a lot of very surprising secrets and that a lot of the, the things that we commonly think are true about building self-awareness are actually not true. And so that was something that we really wanted to do was get to the bottom of this and say, what exactly is it and how do we really get more of it? How great that is. And I want to get into that in greater detail. But I understand you had a pretty good mentor. Uh, your uh, mother uh, started her own business and uh, was very successful at that. So she must have had these leadership skills. These um, She must have been pretty self-aware. How about you? Were you self-aware? <laughs> well, I, I, I'm a lot less self-aware than I thought I was when I started this research project and writing this book. <laughs> and I do think that that's part of the process for all of us. Um, my research has shown that 95% of people think they're self-aware, but the real number is closer to 10 to 15%. 
And so I, I don't like putting ourselves in boxes and saying we either are or we aren't. But what I've learned is, you know, no matter how much I think I know, there's always more to learn. And so if anything, this book has shown me that I need to learn more, even than I thought was possible. So would you say self-awareness to even the most uh, self-aware among us is kind of like how high is up? There's always a potential to become more informed, uh, more what? Self-aware, I guess. Yeah, well, and that's what I see is so exciting, you know, and one of the things we did in our research was we studied people who went from, you know, not knowing themselves and not seeing themselves clearly to being incredibly self-aware. And what I was really surprised to learn was these people spend more time working on their self-awareness than just about anyone. And the funny thing is you'd think that, you know, they're there, they've arrived, they know themselves. But it really is this day-to-day commitment to just uncover these things about ourselves that we didn't see before that help us live a more fulfilled, more meaningful, more successful life. Above all else, to thine own self be true. You listened to the spotlight this morning. How important do you think patience is in this process of self-awareness? That's a great question, one I haven't been asked before. You know, I think there is a sense that um, people who work on self-awareness feel a little bit overwhelmed. You know, it, it, it's sort of disillusioning to, to ask yourself, maybe I do I know myself as well as I think I do? And what I often tell my executive coaching clients is that they have to trust the process. You know, even when you get feedback that just turns your world upside down from somebody else um, or from many people, you have to trust that ultimately it will get you to a better place. And sometimes when you're in the middle of that, patience is what's required. I think patience and trusting yourself and trusting that it will get you on a better path. All right. Now, before we get into the meat of your book, we ask some tough questions on this show, and we post what our shows are going to be in advance. And sometimes our listening audience presents questions to us. And, you know, I guess because we ask the tough questions, I get to play devil's advocate. I didn't find this comment to be true of your book, but I'm going to put the question forward to you. All right. One of your critics wrote this in their review. I simply found the book somewhat pseudo-scientific and thin on qualitative data. How do you answer that criticism, doctor? Well, it's actually not true. What, what somebody writes in a book um, for popular consumption is very different than what they would include in a research paper. And so what I love about the book, um, and I, I respectfully disagree with that person, is that it I tells do too, the by stories. the way. <laughs> yeah. is it, it tells the stories of these people who have made these remarkable transformations. But what's also true um, is that my research team reviewed over 800 quantitative studies. We surveyed thousands and thousands of people around the world to collect um, really um, clear, specific data about what self-awareness is and what it leads to. So I would maybe ask that person if they read the book closely enough. With a little bit of love and a little bit of, you know, spirit of um, sure. confronting them back. Sure. Well, I knew you would handle the tough question because that's all about self-awareness anyway. And you, you deal with the toughest of questions. We'll get to that in a second. But uh, for the record, um, there is a real difference between a journal article and a book that is meant for the public to read that 
is written in a language that makes it very readable, and your book is very readable and very powerful, in my opinion. Okay. Your first book was the New York Times bestselling Bankable Leadership. What is it about self-awareness that piqued your interest for the subject of this book? And, I, you know, Bankable Leadership was a, was really written to help leaders have a nuts-and-bolts tool guide to be successful in their roles. And as I put that book out there, as I worked with my consulting clients to implement the principles and the models, that, that self-awareness piece became so clear to me. And the way I like to think about it is it's the meta skill of the 21st century. And what I mean by that, um, you know, is not to be pedantic, but it's to say that every single thing, every skill that we want to build to be the person we want to be, it probably has an upper limit uh, for how self-aware we are. So if I want to be a great communicator, for example, if I don't know how I'm coming across or who I really am, it's going to limit my ability to communicate effectively. And I found that you can pretty much list any skill in, in there and it applies. And so that's what I really wanted to get at is, is this essence of being all that we can be, in my opinion, is truly to work on the, the skill and habit of self-awareness. All right, Doctor, we probably should define self-awareness. Um, there's, well, I'm sure, going to be a lot of ideas out there about what self-awareness is. And, and you heard in the setup coming into the show several questions that I asked about it. So I'm going to ask you, define self-awareness the way you're using the terminology, please. So based on our, our review of you know, almost a 1,000 studies, what we have come to is that self-awareness is made up of two different types of information about ourselves. The first is what I call internal self-awareness, which is seeing ourselves clearly, really understanding who we are and what we want and what we're good at. The other side of the coin is something I call external self-awareness, which is, in a nutshell, knowing how other people see you. And there's a lot of reasons that both of those are important, and I'm sure we'll tackle them later on. But I've also found that people can be high on one and low on the other. You know, of course, they can be high on both or low on both, but someone who's high on internal self-awareness might be so focused on navel-gazing that they are completely unaware of how other people see them and how they come across. And then the other side, somebody who has high external self-awareness might be so focused on being what they think other people want them to be that they lose sight of, of the choices that can make them feel happy and fulfilled. So it's really a journey about building both, and I think that's what's so fascinating about it. Okay, you mentioned earlier that 95% or so of the people in the world fancy themselves to be aware, when indeed they're not. Why are we much less self-aware than we think we are? There are so many factors working against most people who are well-intentioned, who want to do the right thing by themselves and their loved ones. And so it's not a value judgment. What I, I see a lot of different reasons for this, but you can kind of put them into two buckets. The first bucket are the natural limitations that human beings have for seeing ourselves clearly. So just by virtue of the fact, for example, that we um, can't access a lot of our uh, unconscious thoughts or feelings or behaviors, no matter how much we try, that's an example that somebody who has really good intentions might not be able to see those things, even if they look really hard. 
And so it's just our wiring as humans that we, we don't have a full picture of, of who we really are. But then the second bucket is society. And you guys mentioned this towards the top of the show. It, things are just getting ridiculous at this point, I think, in terms of, of making self-awareness feel impossible. There's so many people who are, um, you know, trumpeting their own horns and being social media influencers and being very, very self-absorbed. But this idea of seeing ourselves clearly and with humility and compassion isn't something that I think uh, a lot of people honestly want to work on. And so for that reason, I think so many of us have work to do. But the good news is my research shows we can do it. Do you think, I mean, this is maybe a bit off the reservation, but do you think all this emphasis on PC speech is uh, inhibiting, uh, to some extent, um, our ability to be self-aware? You know, I think the intention for PC speech is self-aware, but I think the execution of it might complicate things. You know, there is something to be said for speaking authentically um, and, and not having to sugarcoat or change what you think. But I also feel like, you know, and this is true of self-aware people, we have to know who we're talking to. And if that person is someone, for example, who, who is thrown off by un-PC language, part of that process of being self-aware is understanding that and, and maybe, maybe changing your message a little bit if you need to connect with them or if you need to build their trust. But I don't see it as either or, but I think it's a great example of self-awareness in action. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Six in the morning, baby I got a long, long day ahead of me The parents are sleeping soundly The neighbors are dead as wood I'm getting up and coming over We gotta rock the neighborhood Nothing's ever gonna happen around here 
We don't make it happen Sleep away in the day if you want to But I got something that I gotta do We're speaking with Dr. Tasha Yurick about her life and work. You can learn more about our guest by visiting her website at Tasha Yurick, that's E-U-R-I-C-H, T-A-S-H-A, E-U-R-I-C-H, one word, dot com. Now, Dr. Yurick, I have to apologize to you. My studio is in Spokane, Washington, and the station, of course, is in Seattle. And every week I connect to the station via codec, and we lost our remote connection. Oh, doesn't no. happen often, but I know you didn't hang up, so doesn't matter what the folks in the chat room were saying. That was our error, and I apologize to you. I'm happy we could make it happen, and then I'm back. <laughs> Good. <laughs> now, every week we also play our guest's favorite music, and that's because music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas that I know you're informed about, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. So we just played some of your choice, Saturday Morning by the Eels. Tell us, Dr. Yurik, why is this music important to you? And more importantly, how does it inform us about who you are? So that was a really nice acoustic version of that song that I've never heard, so I really appreciate hearing it. Um, okay. Eels are a, a, a pretty lesser-known band, um, but I've been following them since my early days in graduate school, and what I especially like about them, and maybe this is my theater background, is the mood that they create with their songs. Um, I think they do that better than um, so, so many better-known musicians out there, to be honest, and I think they just have such range. And I guess for me, um, you know, I, I like to create moods in my own life, too, and, you know, part of it is being aware of the mood you're in um, and understanding it, and um, hopefully, if you want to change it, being in charge of it. So um, I just, I love that song, and I love that band. Some of the music um, has been shown to you know, brings dementia patients back from what appears to be a coma into a full state of alertness. They jump up, they dance, they're lucid in every way, shape, and form. Is this one we'd play to you if you happen to ever be in that state? Well, if I'm in that state, you need to play um, show tunes for me, and that will get me out. That will make me come back to reality. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Okay, I'm not sure. I mean, we lost you just as you had said. I think PC speech is about, uh, it has good intentions, but it. I missed whether or not you believed that it actually inhibited self-awareness. I came out a little bit 50-50 on that because I do think that the intention of being PC is a self-aware intention. It's saying that what I'm saying might be perceived differently by the person I'm talking to. But I also think that we can go overboard and just get so caught up in our own heads that we're not paying attention to the conversation we're having. So I I think it could be good if used in the right way. Okay. Now, you have a construct that I enjoyed in your book. You call it unicorns. And you found several self-awareness unicorns in your research. People have made remarkable against the odds improvements in their self-knowledge. Why did that happen, or what you know? What did you find in common with that that we can learn from? 
so it wasn't my intention to start studying these people who didn't start out self-aware and became self-aware. What I started by doing is just finding, you know, at the beginning, it was people I knew who I thought fit my definition and talking to them about how do they stay self-aware. And what I learned is that for the people who are sort of naturally good at it, they couldn't explain how they did it. And that was why I thought, well, if I want to hack the code of self-awareness and really figure out what people are doing, I've got to talk to the people for whom it wasn't always natural. And here's what's really fascinating. We didn't find any patterns in these unicorns who were very hard to find. We didn't find any patterns based on gender or age or national origin or job type or education level. What we did find in common were two major things, and obviously the actions they took, but the two high-level things were, number one, a belief in the importance of self-awareness as a pivotal role in their lives, and number two was a daily commitment to working at it. And I think that really is very poetic and says a lot about the process just in and of itself. Okay, a lot of people work on becoming self-aware. And maybe they journal or, you know, they, uh, they actually chronicle events in their lives and there's, you know, a common perception that when things don't work over and over, maybe I'm self-sabotaging myself, I should look at the pattern, uh, I'm the one responsible. Uh, in, in doing that, is, is that a good way to discover or, or to become self-aware, or can we delude ourselves in that process? So most people assume that spending time reflecting on ourselves, whether it's through therapy, through journaling, through talking with a friend, is going to result in self-awareness or insight. But what I and other researchers pretty shockingly have discovered is that not only is there no relationship between introspection and insight, sometimes there's a negative relationship. And I don't know about you, but the first time I started to uncover those findings, it threw everything I thought I knew about self-awareness into question. And what I started to ask myself is, well, is introspection just ineffective? And thankfully, I realized that it's not that it's ineffective, it's just that so many of us fall into these traps that make it hurt us more than it helps us. And there, I talk about plenty of examples in the book. It's a really rich topic. But one example that, that comes to mind is even just the process of asking ourselves why. You know, I, I just had a fight with my husband. Well, why do I always fight with him? And why is my relationship so off track? Those types of questions, um, not only are the answers not always correct, even if they feel correct, but it gets us in a spiral of rumination and self-loathing, and it really doesn't allow us to move forward. So what I suggest to people is to ask what questions instead. It's a little change with a big payoff. So instead, I might say, what can I do to get on better footing with my husband? Or what role did I play in that situation? But what they have in common is they're, they're forward-looking and they're action-based. That's interesting. So if, if I'm seeing the psychotherapist and the psychotherapist assisting me dealing with some issue in my life, that's not necessarily going to help me become self-aware. Yes. And there is a role for processing our past. And actually, there is a role of our past in self-awareness. But what my research and others have shown 
is that it's less helpful to dive into sort of individual events and experiences, and it's more helpful to take a step back and look at the patterns in the events in our lives. And, and what that really helps us do is not get sucked in and really take a, a more high-level view of who we are and how we became who we are. And so that's what I suggest to people. Um, you know, and again, if you want to process with your therapist, absolutely do it. But just know that it might not result in as much self-awareness as it might seem. So many people today, Dr. Yurik, look at their lives and say, well, I mean, you know, I came from a split family or, or my parents were abusive or uh, um, they, they have reasons. Uh, I think of them as rationalizations, although they are genuine reasons, but we, I believe that we use them to rationalize too much of our behavior. That level of understanding is not self-awareness, is it? I don't think so. I think any time that we're putting ourselves into a victim role is not about self-awareness. I think, to your point, it's more about rationalizing something that we probably even know isn't helping us. And it's really the courage to look at yourself clearly and say, I might have some patterns that, you know, either I notice or I don't notice and others can help that aren't serving me. And that's, I think, the right question is that curious sort of open process versus coming to these, you know, broad sweeping conclusions about why we are the way we are. I, I really don't think that helps. And so I just want to make sure that we got this point or I have a clear understanding of the point. Uh, fixating myself on all these issues that may have brought me to where I am, that actually blinds me to the opportunities in true self-awareness. That's what the research says. And there, there are past, present, and future aspects of self-awareness, and we need all three. Um, you know, in the present, we hear about mindfulness. Yes, that's very important. For the future, it's about goals and setting the right goals. And in the past, it is helpful. Um, but again, I really encourage people to look at those broad themes in their lives instead of those specific events and really kind of over-processing or overthinking them. So could I use the what and why comparison if if <clears throat> if I've excused some things in my life or some behaviors, maybe, you know, I respond in a certain way. Uh, uh, let's say that I, you know, I really don't want to um, have a binding relationship. So I have a bit of an affective disorder. I distance myself from some people because I was hurt when I was young. But I've kind of come to understand that. Can I use the same what and why? I mean... I can say, well, why is my behavior? And I come up with, well, you remember when I was hurt, when I was rejected? How would I use the what in that scenario? So what I would say, the first question I would ask is, what is so scary to me about being in a more committed relationship? And if I imagine being in that relationship, what would the things be that, that made me uncomfortable? And again, asking why, it sort of doesn't matter why. It matters what. Another thing I might ask is, um, what do I want to do about this? Sometimes people are perfectly happy staying in their patterns. We often see that it's not serving them, but other people's self-awareness journeys aren't ours to take. And so I think that's another part of it is um, if, if we are the person in this example, we should be asking those what questions. Um, but if, say, we happen to be dating this person, um, it might be better to just find somebody who's more attuned to what we're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. All right. 
listen, you know, social media is a, I don't know, it's obscene in my view often today. Uh, the things that are said on social media, it seems that because you're anonymous, you have this license to just go out there and, you know, what is the impact of social media on self-awareness in our culture today? Social media is a big part of a cultural phenomenon across the globe that I call the cult of self. And the cult of self is really tempting all of us to join it. Um, You know, we look at reality TV that glorifies people for doing nothing. We look at social media where we can say and be anything we want to, regardless of the objective truth, right? And so the reason that's different from self-awareness is it's it's blind confidence and and sort of blind self-absorption. What's different about self-awareness is that, yes, we still love ourselves and we accept ourselves compassionately, but we also see ourselves clearly. And at the end of the day, even though belonging to the cult of self might feel great in the short term, I argue very passionately that it's always better to see yourself clearly. That's what helps you make better choices in your life, better choices in your career. It helps you build better relationships, and, and the list goes on. Um, but I would, I would caution everyone on this call to think about how, how much of a member are you to the cult of self? You know, if you paid your membership dues this year. And um, what effect might that be having on you? I, I, I have to contrast something here because I, I tried what I today call the Uric test. Forgive me. <laughs> oh, my but, goodness. Uh, you know, I, I try to prepare for these shows, read the books, uh, you know, look online, see, you know, what everybody says about who you are and what what your work is. And uh so I decided I'm going to try the uric test, and I sat down with a friend of mine, and I said, what one thing about me bothers you the most? And he was tongue-tied. And I could tell there were things he wanted to say, but he just simply wouldn't say them. So I thought, you know, the place to ask this question is on social networking, because there you'll get the truth. Now, I know you've done this. Flesh this whole bit of what I call the Uric test out for us, will you? So the Uric test, uh, I love that. In the book, I call it the, the dinner of truth. And right, idea, but I like the Uric test the Uric better. Test. Okay, we'll change it officially from this point okay. forward. <laughs> but, you know, the people that are closest to us see the things that we're doing that aren't in our best interest. But to your point, they actually don't tell us as, as often as we would think or hope. And so quite often it it falls to us to get this information out of them and help them see, you know, what goals we have for that process. And so the the dinner of truth is one tool I talk about in the book. Um, And sometimes you want to prepare the person for the question you're asking. You know, it's really about you know them best. But the ultimate topic of discussion at the dinner is what's the most, what's the number one thing that you find most annoying about me? And it's so funny because we have a wonderful social community, um, social media community, actually, social media for good, um, on insights and the lessons that people have learned. And one of the things readers very often tell me is when they do this dinner or when they do the uric test, what they learn is more affirming than it is tearing them down. 
and it builds their relationship. And I think what we fear will come out of that conversation is almost never as bad as what we actually learn. But I think I've done it many, many times. I would encourage anyone to, to take a deep breath, be bold, and ask the question. It, it, I know, but I mean, it seems like the inclination of the person you ask seems to be one of promoting your image. Oh, they're, you know, I, I really like this about you, and, you know, I admire this about you, as opposed to giving you the nitty-gritty. Do you think we should try the Uric test online and social media? You know, it's interesting, because if, you're, if your social media followers know you personally, I think that's valuable feedback. The other side of me is saying, you know, not all feedback is helpful, and not all feedback is well-intentioned. You know, and you mentioned the, the one-star Amazon review, you know, somebody that really didn't like the book. And I think we have to sort of curate the feedback that we let in. And so, yes, it might be harder to sit down and look your best friend in the eye and get that answer than it is to put it on social media and sort of come back later. I would just question whether that second type of feedback is actually going to be helpful. Yeah, I, I can see that. I'm an author myself. I've seen a couple of those reviews that you don't really like. So. Oh, and you never forget them, do you? <laughs> no, no, they're there. They're, they're yep, indelibly burned in. <laughs> Let me ask you this. There, there are three um, things that you recommend to everybody. We basically, you know, have covered, well, we've touched on one. I don't want to say that we've covered it. So I'm going to ask you, Share with our audience the three things they can do that will really impact their self-awareness. So there is a list of a hundred things. So I'm going to pick three maybe that, you know, come from our conversation. I think the first thing to do is to really honestly explore some of the barriers that you might be facing um, to, to really seeing yourself clearly. Are you somebody that asks feedback often? Or do you like to keep your head in the sand and have your rose-colored glasses? Are you someone who reflects on their choices, you know, even at the end of every day? Um, Are you someone who does that? Are you someone who would just rather feel good um, than know the truth? I think most people know if they're that person. And what I would encourage you to think about is, what would it mean for me if I knew myself even 10% better? And think about the benefits and really create that value proposition for yourself so that if it's difficult or if it requires energy, um, it's worth it and you do it. So the second thing I'd suggest is actually the Uric test or the dinner of truth. It's very quick, very big payoff. Um, I think it can help us sort of develop our self-awareness muscle and realize that asking for feedback is good. The third thing I'd recommend that we haven't touched on is something I call the daily check-in. And again, introspection isn't bad, but so many of us get so off track and overthinking things that the daily check-in is very simple. At the end of each day, in the evening, before you go to bed, on your way home from work, you ask yourself three questions. Number one, what went well today? Number two, what didn't go well? And number three, how will I be smarter tomorrow? And going back to our unicorns, um, each of those three behaviors was something that they reported doing on a regular basis. And I'm constantly inspired by these people, and I try to be just like them. <laughs> Wonderful advice. And the book is chock-a-block full of 
advice on how you can become more aware. Let me ask you this. You know someone, maybe you work with them, maybe they're your, you know, uh, spouse. Um, And there's something about them that, you know, is their opportunity. That's what I'll call it. It's it's something that bothers you, disturbs you, something they could do much better. Okay? Uh, Do we dare just approach them, nudge them, sit down with them and say, hey, would you like to become more self-aware? I've got some (laughs) clues for you. At your own risk, um, you know, I mentioned this earlier, and I think it's worth repeating. Other people's self-awareness journeys, no matter how tempting it is, are not ours to navigate. That doesn't mean um, that there aren't some unaware people who would really appreciate the feedback. But in the book, I talk about several sort of thoughts that we have to go through and questions we have to answer to decide, do the benefits outweigh the cost? And then how can I confront this person with passion. But for now, what I would say is just be very, very, very careful and be willing to accept the worst case scenario if you really think it's important to do. Why do you think it is that so many people are reluctant to tell us the truth about these things? Is it that, you know, we just feel it's going to ruin our relationship? We're going to be ostracized? I mean, is it very complicated? Is it that simple? So think about the early days of the human race when we were literally um, living in caves and running away from predatory animals. We survived by staying in groups. And there's been a lot of research that actually shows that um, social rejection can cause, it can activate similar parts of our brain as physical pain does. And so my belief, based on seeing the research on this, is that we're almost hardwired to hold that truth in, because what we don't want to do is be voted off the island um, and, and left to fend for ourselves, which back, you know, very, very long time ago, that meant certain death. And obviously, in the modern era, we don't face, most of us don't face those types of issues, but those instincts hold on. And that's why I tell people, you have to make the choice to overcome it. You have to accept it's there, and you really have to take ownership for learning the truth. How important do you think it is, uh, Dr. Yurik, that we become uh, truly self-aware in terms of, you know, our life choices, our careers, our values, our aspirations, and so forth? I don't want to overstate this, but I also think that self-awareness is the secret weapon of the 21st century. And the reason I say that is most people are not ready or willing to do that work. And if you do, it will have payoff in every area of your life. There's a lot of, you know, very rigorous empirical research that shows us that self-aware people are more productive at work. They get more promotions. They're more successful. They pick better careers. On the home side, they have better, more fulfilling marriages. They raise more mature children. Um, They're better students. And so from my perspective, I just think about why not? Why not try to do some work and know ourselves just a little bit better and start to get those massive payoffs. Probably the most difficult question for us parents out there, I've saved for the last, how do you approach a sibling that is, you know, a teenager that is just so self-absorbed and narcissistic that, you know, everything they do is uh, annoying. How do you get some self-awareness out of that, or is it the parent that needs to become more self-aware? 
Well, uh, there's so much to that. That's a whole other show on its own, probably. But there is evidence that unself-aware parents raise less self-aware children. There's also evidence that parents who emphasize their child's specialness over showing them warmth tend to raise more narcissistic children. And so that's not to say that, that there isn't some sort of fixed set of characteristics in all of us to some extent, but the choices that parents make really do have an impact on that. All right, Dr. Yurick, in, um, you know, 45 seconds or so, please share with our audience how they can learn more about you, where they can get your book, uh, where they might even meet you in a seminar or a lecture or something or present a question to you personally. So if anyone's intrigued by this topic, um, and secondarily maybe me, but the topic first and foremost, I have a free quiz um, on my website that you can get a high-level assessment of your self-awareness, and you actually also send it to someone who knows you well. And so you get it kind of on a graph of where you fall. You get some recommendations for what to do. Um, And if anybody wants to take that, it's totally free, no strings attached. It's www.insight-quiz.com. Give that website again. www.insight-quiz.com. Great, uh, great information. I want to thank you, Dr. Yurick, for your willingness to share your work and for your openness to come onto this show and just spontaneously have our conversation. <laughs> it was just a joy. Thank you so much for having me. Indeed, my pleasure. And for all of you out there, the book, Insight, Why We're Not As Self-Aware As We Think. New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Tasha Yurick, I highly recommend this. I don't think you can move ahead in self-improvement unless you become self-aware. All right. That brings us to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today, and I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends, let's have them join us as well. Until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.